Hello, I'm Leroy Garcia, and this is Blue Rain Gallery Podcast. Today in the studio, we have um, one of my longstanding co-workers in Peter Stessel, and one of our favorite artists in the Hispanic devotional uh, art forms in Victor Gustavo Guler. Welcome, both of you. Thank you. Thank you. I thought it would be a good idea to, to talk a bit, little bit about uh, the medium that you're uh, specifically working in. Uh, what's funny, when we're walking in here, uh, you, you diagnose the same problem that I have. You know, we've been at it long enough that the, the resells start coming back on the market. And sometimes that's the only way we can get Victor's work because <laughs> he's so busy and in demand. Um, but the, the same problem in the native spectrum, you know, we, we built big collections and sometimes we're blessed when we get them back. Uh, last year we received a huge collection by one of our favorite people who passed on in uh, Mary Webster. And most of the, the Spanish devotional artists knew her and were in her collection. I think it was close to about 250, 300 pieces. Yeah. And we, we sold a, a good chunk of that, but we still have a lot left. And then on top of that, we received collections from Joe Mori, and I mean, it, the list is growing. Um, and there is, there is a need for, for a voice in the gallery system. And I, I'm thinking that the, the Hispanic devotional artists are starting to wake up to that uh, because it's been so like uh, self-direct selling for the most part. You, uh, you know, they, they carve all year, but sell direct or they save their stuff for Spanish market. And there hasn't been, in my perspective, a, a, a growth in a price base in a long time. I, I think uh, Victor probably is, sets the highest prices for the most part in, in, that, in that medium. Um, but I, I think there's a reason why, um, and that's, that's because there hasn't been enough gallery focus on, on this beautiful art form. Um, you know, for many years, Blue Rain Gallery has carried Kachina dolls. And we pretty much controlled the market there for a long time, and then we got out of it. And then those collections come back in waves, and we're we're right back in the market where we started. And uh, but along with that comes the devotional art, which is just as beautiful, probably even more more refined. But because it hasn't been as collected, I don't know for some reason the, the prices are uh, not at the same plane. Um, we sell Kachina dolls in the thirty thousand dollar range, you know, regularly and often. So, anyways, let's start with uh, Victor. Victor, tell us a little bit about your history, who you are, um, what got you into this art form, what do you like about it, stuff of that nature. Well, uh, I grew up here in Santa Fe in a family of uh, art conservators and antique dealers. I went to work for them at an early age. By the time I was like 11, I was messing around in their studios. They're the ones that taught me how to carve or at least how to use the tools. Uh, they saw pretty quickly that I was uh, self-motivated, and that was something that I uh, enjoyed doing. I'd go in there and, you know, make toys for myself and boxes and things like that. And <laughs> eventually, I figured out that there was uh, a history of uh, saint-making in New Mexico. They were working on a lot of old devotional art uh, within the studio, the conservation studio. And they put me to work on these pieces, primarily because they saw that I could work with wood, and so I was carving fingers, attributes, bases, you know, whatever was needed. And uh, by the time I was like 17, just before I graduated high school, I decided that I would try to carve a piece. I was mainly copying some of the older ones, 
and I enjoyed that. And so I, I would maybe do a handful of pieces a year, mainly for family and friends, you know, primarily. I um, went off to school to study uh, graphic design, uh, advertising and graphic designs, because I, I didn't necessarily want to be an artist, even though all through high school I freelanced, I made furniture, I carved and painted signs, I painted you know, uh, birds on kitchen cabinets, anything that I could to stay creative uh, and, uh, and make money at it. <laughs> and so, uh, but I, I went off and, and got a degree in, in advertising and uh, very quickly came back to Santa Fe and I opened a small conservation studio on Canyon Road. This was around 1986. And um, that Christmas, I uh, decided that I would make some little retablos and santos for some of the galleries that were giving me a lot of work and helping support me. And so I, I, when I brought them in, they were like, hey, you gotta, you gotta bring these into the gallery, man. We'll, we'll sell them. And my family encouraged me as well. My sister um, kind of gave me my first show on the plaza in Santa Fe. Right. And what business does she have? Well, she was managing uh, Ortega's Turquoise Mesa at the time, which still mm. exists. So it was a big jewelry, pottery, you know, store. And so she had a, a little show for me. And that was kind of the, the beginning of it. I wasn't uh, still sure that that's what I wanted to do in my life. And uh, it was a little difficult to stay alive in Santa Fe. Uh, and so I decided that I would move to Taos. And that I would really focus and decide if this is really uh, what I want to do. And so Taos was really good to me right off the bat. You know, and I cut my overhead by two thirds, so that re- yeah, was Santa very helpful. Santa Fe's expensive. <laughs> <And> so, <laughs> that helped me buy a house and all of that later on down the line. Uh, but I also uh, just really connected with the right the right people. And so I was, uh, again, still involved in conservation and I became very specialized with the older New Mexico Santos. And I worked for major collectors like Larry Frank, whose work you find at the Palace of the Governors now. I started working for a lot of the major collectors uh, and I still do you know, to this day. So I've had this parallel career. Along with that, I uh, you know, really wanted to create my own personal style with my pieces. And so what I had been doing before just as a hobby was, like I mentioned, copying the older ones and I wanted to create more movement and uh, really work a lot more with design and composition of the pieces, not just produce a santo. It seems like you contemporize them a little bit more than just making a traditional bultor. Right, right, and that was my goal. And so, and I also wanted to be a, a much better carver, you know, and I, I wanted to add dexterity and movement to the fingers, for example. You could see the skeletal form underneath the gowns, like maybe a knee that sticks out. You could tell that one hip is higher than the other. Uh, and, uh, you know, maybe the, the head is turned. And, but then I also would do a lot of research, as I still do, uh, within the saints, and I try to figure out uh, a little bit more in-depth of what that person was, because a lot of the saints were human, right? So they did have a human aspect to them. And uh, figured out uh, their different... Uh, uh, attributes that they might have, and uh, so I may accentuate one of those specific attributes. Can you give me an example of one of your favorites that you did like that? Well, I, 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 you know, just kind of a recent one that I did for you guys was a um, that seated Guadalupe. Mm-hmm. And so, for example, you know, Guadalupe usually is standing, and she does have a crescent, like Mary, uh, many of the uh, images of Mary, which represents uh, purity and her virginity. And so, you always see like a crescent at the bottom of her feet. In this case, I, I sat Guadalupe down 
on the crescent, you know, and so that was really more of a design aspect, a composition where, you know, I don't do anything that's sacrilegious. I don't tend to add things that don't necessarily belong. You're you're dealing with the attributes. Yes, right, right. But emphasizing them and switching them around in different ways so that uh, uh, the whole design is different. So it's a Guadalupe, but, you know, it's not like your everyday Guadalupe. Yeah, I remember when you brought that in, I was like, I've never seen a Guadalupe. (laughs) (laughs) So I do all of that through research and sketches. I sketch all this work out. uh, And sometimes, you know, I get to it. Maybe it could be six months or a year later as I'm looking through my sketchbook. I think of something and then I develop it further and then I carve it. Well, I love your artistic artistic, uh, vision of what you've done. Uh, But it seems like your work... um, is a lot more polished than most of your contemporaries. So, like, it, this is not just a carving. What, what, after it's carved, what are you doing to the piece? Give me the process a little bit. Like, uh, the texture in the, in the face, um, the hands. Correct. What, what, are, what, are, what are the materials you're using? So, I, you know, I'm, I'm uh, a sculptor, primarily. Uh, I do two-dimensional stuff. But it's all on wood, so it's polychromed wood. And so the process is very... Uh, European, traditional, as far as uh, the gesso layers, the animal hide glue uh, that goes on as, as a primer before you put the gesso on. This is, of course, after the piece is carved, uh, which is very similar to how you would prepare a canvas in the old days. You know, now you can go and buy a canvas with gesso on it, but a long time ago you had to use that same process. You stretched it, you, you put the animal hide glue, which sizes it and makes it nice and tight, and it helps the gesso then uh, adhere uh, to either the canvas or the wood better because you use that same animal hide glue to create a gesso and so it binds really well. So um, where did you learn that process? Was it through um, restorations or uh, like how did you come up with the gesso idea on the wood? Because that's been used for centuries, right? It has, well? right. But I see a lot of uh, contemporary carvers that aren't using gesso as much, probably because it's a pain in the butt. It is. Uh, it's a whole other process that takes a long time. For many years, I was, uh, I was well, I'm not going to say many, maybe five years, <laughs> I was, I was a total traditionalist. So I did everything from scratch. So just short of going out and shooting a rabbit and boiling the skin and creating you know, the glue, which I can do. You know, uh, but now you can go to the store and buy it, of, of course. Uh, but yeah, I think for some of my contemporaries, they, they switched over to uh, something easier, uh, you know, an acrylic gesso, for example, that you can just go buy. Where the other gesso, the traditional gesso, you have to cook and you have to maintain it at a certain temperature. If you overcook it, you're killing the protein and the glue. And there's a lot of added hassles. You can get pinholes or cracking and stuff like that. So it's hard to master that. Exactly. That's what I think is special mm. on top of how good you are at creativity, you know, <laughs> your carving. But uh, that, that technique process um, just separates you from everybody else in a way. I mean, there's a few that have, have mastered that as well. Oh, yeah. We have some examples behind us. Um, but, you know, um, Peter, we, we, we brought you in because as far as Blue Rain Gallery, you take care of the acquisitions and uh, logistics of things. But as far as uh, the acquisitions, you've been, tell us about what you're seeing in the, in the market as far as Blue Rain or the market itself. Well, what I'm always impressed with is, uh, you know, it starts off, you get a phone call, some people are downsizing and, uh, or there's, Unfortunately, been someone passed away, and the the estate, usually the children who are adults, uh, 
they want to, you know, liquidate what they have. And I look at what they have, and I'm really impressed with uh, the quality that a lot of these people have collected. And, um, and a lot of them don't want to part with it. And a lot of them are alive. They don't want to part with it, and their children don't want it. And so we, we bring it in, and we, uh, you know, work out the arrangement with them. But I'm impressed with, you know, how popular these pieces are. And through all the years of doing this, I personally have been uh, enlightened by this whole market. And it is an active market. And I've learned to look at quality. Uh, I've learned a lot of the. And also Victor's helped me a lot, kind of like a mentor. Uh, when I have questions, I can call him up and say, who's this guy? You know? <laughs> Thank you, Victor, for being a resource. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He's been great with that. And, uh, but uh, it, it's just a lot of fun. And, and it's impressive. And it's very artistic. You know, Victor talked about his processes and that sort of thing. And we see it in a lot of these other artists, too. And uh, behind Leroy, there is a a piece by Alcario Otero, who uh, really impresses me. And <clears throat> we actually met him, I met him through Victor. And uh, you know, there's a lot of legend uh, Santos out there, Santeros and Santeras. And uh, uh, it's, it's just a lot of uh, enlightening and fun work. And the quality is, is really impressive, the, the yeah. collections we get. I think the other thing that impresses me, I mean, uh, in Victor's skill level, he's just way up there. but. I think in general of the uh, the Hispanic devotional art market is the creativity. Uh, when I when I see like uh, Nicholas Herrera, right? Uh, he's not the most polished guy, but he's one of the more creative guys because <laughs> he can go to a junkyard and <laughs> make whatever. You know, he's he's uh, incredible. And then you get to Victor, and then you have a lot of other people like Arlene Cisnerosena. Yeah. Really a polished painter. Right. That, that She's good. very fine. Very much. Yeah. There, there's just so many artists. I mean, uh, it, it's I know, been interesting uh, getting uh, familiar with all the names. Yeah, Lori Garcia. Lori Garcia. Lori Garcia. Garcia. Yeah, I think that's, yeah, who, that's who I was thinking of. She's, uh, she's really... She's really refined, but on top of that, kind of innovative with her uh, forms and stuff. Uh, the other guy I like, uh, who we get pieces from the collections, is sometimes there's some whimsical, fun pieces by Arthur Lopez, you know. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, I like a lot of his stuff. And there's also pieces where you see the artist's kind of life bubble up through their pieces, too, you know, and uh, some of the challenges they've had and that sort of thing. And uh, that's like what an artist does, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, I like a, when, when we were opening what I was talking about, I, I do think that... Um, Blue Rain has been opening up more of a door for uh, galleries to be thinking about elevating this art form higher than than what it has been given uh, as far as acclaim. Um, and I'm looking forward to that. And I, I really appreciate um, Victor helping us through all this journey. It's been fun. I think we've been off and on for about 20 plus years huh, or more. I think so. Yeah. yeah. It's been a fun journey. Since you guys were in Taos before Since we Taos. were coming to the yeah. homeland. Yeah, so have that. you ever worked on any of my great 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 grandfather's work i yes this is and who are we uh, talking uh, about mire pacheco yeah and yeah. so uh um bartolome right bartolome mm -hmm. mire pacheco uh i have but his work is hard to find so most of the time when i when i have worked on conservation and restoration of his work it's within the walls of a church yeah 
So in this case, more recently, we, I think we're getting ready to work in Las Trampas. Oh, nice. And uh, there's some of his work there. And that church was built Long time between uh, 1760 and 1776. So Do you make was, some altars for that? So, or? Uh, uh, historically, that's what we think. All the altars that are in there were painted uh, by Mira Pacheco. And he really only has a couple of carvings in there but then was later overpainted in 1860 by Jose de Gracia Gonzalez, who uh, was from Mexico and came up to New Mexico and, and did a lot of restoration in some of those old churches where he overpainted, uh, you know, altar screens. And, yeah, there's a, there's a big one of his altar screens at the Cristo Rey here in the uh, up Canyon Road that uh, uh, he did in 1750. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's pretty interesting. So New Mexico has a long history of this, uh, going all the way back into Spain, and I mean that that art process was brought forward. Definitely. And um, these these artists are all uh, multi talented. Uh, like my grandfather was a was a painter and a map maker, and but he's also a santero. <laughs> he was multiple skills, kind of like what you're talking about. But he was trained, yeah. you know. So he actually had academic training, where the other santeros that sort of came after him. Uh, we're sort of growing up here in New Mexico and there wasn't that same kind of training. And that's what really made New Mexico sort of unique in its style. Because, um, you know, some pieces have big hands or big heads or, you know, mm-hmm. they're not necessarily anatomically correct. Uh, but it's something that's very definitive and is considered uh, an American folk art. You know, because nowhere else in the United States do you actually find such a big history, you know, so New Mexico's unique. Well, I think about the homeland of Taos, and there, there's a Salazar, right? Yes. Uh, and uh, was it pa- Patricio Salazar? Uh, no, it's uh, Patrocino Varela. Varela, sorry. Is, is one. And most of those sculptures were easier format. They weren't exactly detailed like what you're doing today. Correct. So he came in uh, uh, right around the 1930s during the WPA era is when he really appeared. And he just had his own crazy style. So in this case, he didn't paint. He would take... Just natural wood. Just natural wood. And so, but he would use cedars or, or junipers. And so he would take the shape. And he wasn't always creating... Uh, devotional pieces. So some of it are stories of life and things like that, you know, greed. You know. Where can we find the largest amount of your work in a museum? The Harwood Museum. In, in Taos. In Taos, yeah. Tell us, tell us about that. How, so, how did that come <laughs> Well, one collector who collected for 26 years, uh, uh, starting early, like in 86, he actually went back and found pieces from earlier. I think he started collecting right around 88, right when I moved to Taos. And so he uh, donated half of the collection. And so there's 26 years worth of my work, plus a few other pieces that they had. So I, I don't know, it's some 40-odd Yeah, it's big. Pieces. Yeah, very impressive. And so <laughs> not all carvings, you know, some of it is, you know, I've done lithographs and other things. So that was part of the Mixed combination in. of all of it. But it's, it's the biggest sort of re- repertoire. Of, of my work. Is, um, can people see that online? Do they, does the Harwood have that? Yeah, online? yeah, definitely. So probably harwood.com, uh, something like that. Uh, it's a nice Harwood Museum. Yeah, yeah. Or .org. So look that up um, to view some of uh, Victor's uh, history. Yeah. His journey, right? <laughs> so that's what pretty it, cool. What it doesn't have is my kind of the last, you know, sort of eight or nine years where I've gone a, a lot more contemporary. Yeah, and so but you can see how the work the progression. has changed, right? Mm-hmm. 
Well, I'd like to thank you for coming today, Victor. And, yeah. And Peter, you. keep up the good work, Peter, in the acquisitions. And, uh, I, just, know. I just want to say one more thing. You know, through Victor and through our collections, I personally have learned so much about these saints and what they represent. You know, I mean, there's saints that are the pat- uh, woman as the patron saint of ice skating. There's the patron saint of taxi drivers, gardeners, you <laughs> Everything. Know, last summer we, we had this one that was a patron saint of pandemics. I forgot who that was. That thing sold immediately, you know? And so yeah. I don't know. That's uh, the connection. So, you know, uh, you don't have to be necessarily a devout person right. or, or even a Catholic to really kind of have fun with the story behind the piece. And it could just have that personal, uh, attachment. So, but, yeah. yeah, if you're an architect, you want a Santa Barbara. If you're a doctor, maybe you want a San Rafael. Uh, yeah. And it's strictly for that reason. Yeah. Well, I'd like to encourage everybody if they have questions to hit up Peter Stessel. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, mean, I, I can do the best I can. But <laughs> well, if we if we don't know, we'll go to Victor. I'll tell you if I don't know. Call input. me. Yeah. If I don't know, I'll so, find out. Yeah. If Victor we'll, doesn't know, I'll still find out. We'll yeah. do the best we can. He usually Victor. knows everything, but. Uh, <laughs> Well, appreciate you guys coming today. Um, I'd like to invite everybody to view our podcast on all the platforms, either uh, blueraingallery.com or uh, iTunes or Spotify or whatever platform you can find. Uh, we're on most. i also like to encourage you to take art with you into your everyday life by visiting blueraingprintshop.com. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Leroy. Thanks, Leroy. <laughs>